Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And we're tackling the question, do blondes have more fun? And we're going to talk about all hair colors, mm-hmm. especially because, well, we're not going to talk about gray. I take that back. Yeah. We did an episode a while ago focusing on gray hair. And melanocyte activity. Yes. And for this episode, we're really honing in on what's the deal with blonde hair, hair color stereotypes, why we associate different characteristics with different hair colors, especially on women, and talking about brunettes and redheads as well. Yeah. Because you and I are a bunch of dark-haired gals. We, you are, your hair is really dark, and mine, I've been fighting it. I've been trying for years to join the ranks of the gingers, but God, red hair dye fades fast. Does it? Yeah. I did a, a maroon hair dye in... High school, early high school, a la Angela Chase for my so-called life. Uh-huh. But that's the most adventurous. Oh, and I got highlights. I got blonde highlights in 10th grade. Really? Yes. Huh. I will never do blonde <laughs> highlights in my dark hair again. I've, I've been a blonde. Well, I was born with white blonde hair. Like, I had white blonde hair until I was about 10. And then it started to fade to a brown. And so then in high school, I was blonde, I was my normal color, and then I was a redhead. But I've never gone black because my hairstylist told me it would wash me out. Now, the fact, though, Caroline, that you were born with that really, really blonde hair and had it when you were a kid is one of the reasons why we might value blonde hair differently than we value brunette hair. And just to kick things off, I've got a quote from Victoria Shero, who wrote The Encyclopedia of Hair, A Cultural History. And she writes, throughout most of human history, blonde hair has been considered attractive and alluring, possibly because this color is associated with gold and light, two things that people consider valuable and desirable. And blondes are statistically a lot less common than brunettes. Right. And so are redheads, but people just don't seem to trust redheads for some reason. But for millennia, people have been changing up their hair colors because clearly we put so much value in this color of our hair. Yeah, this goes back as it typically does, all the way to the ancient Egyptians and Middle Eastern folks. Those women colored their hair with henna, a practice that is still... Uh, pursued now. And henna is derived from the dried leaves and stems of the henna shrub. That sounds so fancy, coloring your hair with a shrub. And to cover gray hair, hold on for it, Egyptians mixed oil with the blood of a black cat. Oh, dear. Oh, oh dear. I'm glad that technology has improved for hair dyeing. Um, in ancient Rome, Hair dyes were also very popular, and historians have found more than 100 different recipes for dyeing and bleaching hair. Uh, For instance, there was a Slate article from 2010 that offered this Roman concoction of goat's fat mixed with beechwood ashes and vinegar and a little bit of saffron to uh, get Hmm. their hair all blonde. Well, uh, men were doing this too. The Celts and the Vikings, those dudes, used bleach to create pale blonde beards. In Babylonian, Abyssinian, and Assyrian cultures, men dyed their facial hair black. 
I guess, to look more youthful, strong, strong man, Blackbeard. Uh, and men in ancient Persia used henna as well. And since we're really focusing a lot on the blonde hair thing in this episode, the Greeks were the first to praise bleaching techniques and to record their strong beliefs that lighter hair color signified, here we go, innocence, superior social standing, and sexual desirability. And that sexual desirability thing is uh, takes on a couple of different positive and more negative connotations for the Romans. Yeah, because you mean the Romans thought blondes were prostitutes? Yeah. Well, they actually were, because prostitutes in the Roman Empire either dyed their hair or wore wigs, although... Blonde hair later became a respectable marker of upper-class women. So it's interesting to me how blonde hair has been so cyclical since the very beginning. You're either upper-class and rich, or you're a prostitute, or maybe you're out of fashion, but then you're in fashion again, and then you're a prostitute. Yeah, some people actually think that uh, there was a Roman law at one point that decreed that prostitutes had to wear blonde wigs, and so some wonder whether or not that's where the whole idea of blondes, quote-unquote, having more fun came Hmm. from. Although I think that's taking a little bit of creative license with history. Well, because it also had something to do with slavery. Uh, Light hair became fashionable after Greek culture reached Italy, and the Roman legionnaires began bringing back fair-haired slaves from Gaul with, you know, those those Frenchy people. Um, wealthier people sprinkled gold dust on their hair, as did the ancient Phoenicians, and to color gray hair, Romans used a mixture of ashes, boiled walnut shells, and earthworms. I wonder what would happen, you know how YouTube has all of those, those vloggers that will do the, you know, like, this is how you do your hair. I think that <laughs> we should do a show... <laughs> Taking, finding those 100 plus different recipes for dyeing bleaching hair from Ew. ancient Rome and make them and put them maybe not on our hair, maybe on some mannequin hair. Yeah, mannequin hair, Barbies. And see if it works. I, cause I think that ashes, boiled walnut shells and earthworms would be pretty easy to come by, Caroline. I'll let you crush the earthworms. We could call it ancient Roman salon hair. I'll think of a better name. Okay. <laughs> um, blondes in medieval Europe couldn't get a break, really. The Roman Catholic Church condemned women in this time period who bleached their hair. And up until the late 14th century, many Europeans regarded blonde hair as provocative and a uh, symbol of female seductiveness. See, here we go. Back again from the, oh, you're a prostitute if you have blonde hair. No, you're a fashionable upper class woman. No, you are a witch. No, you are too Seductive. Meanwhile, though, in China and Japan, dark hair was highly exalted. Um, in 17th century England, dark hair became more desirable than blonde hair for women. And this trend started in the early 17th century when French artists were painting in classical styles. And if you look at a lot of those paintings, they depict darker haired women rather than blondes. And women who bleached their hair or used blonde wigs were, here we go again for the flip, now seen as low class or unfashionable. Can you win as a blonde? You can win for about a hundred years. Seems like a <laughs> hundred years at a time. Yeah, I think I think we're in a pretty neutral blonde hair period. Yeah, I think it's pretty acceptable to have blonde hair, as we will discuss. Indeed. Um, but as far as coloring your hair and the way that women did it, 
We move forward to the early 20th century when we start getting a lot more technology. And granted, it, w- it tended to be a little painful at times, the way that they used chemicals and heating and all that stuff. But in 1917, the double process technique to create blonde hair, hair was developed. And this is where uh, people who color their hair will be familiar with it. The natural color is stripped and then the new color is applied. And then in the 1920s, a small French company, Murray, created a formula that enabled colorant to penetrate the hair shaft rather than just coating the outside. So we're getting more of these technological hair developments. And in the 1950s, women are really able to take hair coloring, for better or for worse, into their own hands with home hair color kits that become more popular. Uh, Clairol, for instance, developed new products that help change these attitudes. And it's interesting that in the earliest ad campaigns for Clairol, they really emphasized the value of blonde hair for women. For instance, uh, in some of their 1950s campaigns, uh, they had taglines such as, is it true blondes have more fun? If I only have one life to live, let me live it as a blonde. And as you know, the new blonde woman is probably pushing <laughs> a vacuum cleaner, finding lots of fulfillment in her new hair color. Well, yeah, I mean, all these ads serve to try to make coloring your hair a more acceptable, socially acceptable practice because how are companies like Clairol going to make any money if women and men still perceive coloring your hair to be sort of a taboo topic? And it's interesting considering that dicey history of blonde hair that they really did use the value and attractiveness Mm -hmm. of being a blonde to sell that. But this also is coinciding in the 1950s with the popularity, for instance, of Marilyn Monroe and Jane Mansfield, these blonde bombshells who are setting screens on fire all around the country and the world, really. Um, And moving on, in the 1970s, more women are becoming more open about using hair color. They start getting highlights. (laughs) like I did when I was in 10th grade. And an increasing number of men start doing it as well. Uh, Some might remember the old school Grecian formula. And now there's just for men. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's just for men. Although still more taboo for men to admit to coloring their hair. Yeah. Because guys can become silver foxes. Right. Stately. Yeah, whereas women just become old. 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 Gray heads. <laughs> well, speaking of old gray heads, about 51% of the people who use hair colorants today do so to conceal gray hairs associated with aging. I'm not there yet. My melanocyte activity is still strong. All right. Yeah. And so I color my hair just because of vanity. Turns out also that baby boomers are more likely to dye their hair than any previous generation. So clearly those advertisements in the 1950s from Clairol and L'Oreal did wonders for making it socially acceptable. And speaking of the 1950s, we have had hair color habits rise each decade. So in the 1950s, about 4 to 6% of American women admitted to doing it. I guess that's just admitted to doing it. We don't know. Self-reporting, who knows. Okay. In the 1970s, that number jumped to more than 40%. And moving up to 2004, 51 to 75% of American women had colored their hair at least once. And as of 2000, hair coloring products have become a $1 billion per year industry. And, uh, you know, men contribute a lot to this as well. In 2002, for instance, sales of men home 
hair coloring products reached almost $114 million. And about one in every 12 American men was coloring his hair. Most of them 30 to 50 years old, either single or divorced. And of course, <laughs> we have the rise of teens like myself <laughs> coloring their hair. About 30% of U.S. teens started using hair color by the 21st century. But getting back to the whole blonde thing, because now we have with this hair color technology, it's so easy for us to choose whatever hair color we want mm-hmm. and just go with it. And when it comes so to um, the popularity of blonde hair in the U.S. in particular, we got to talk for just a second about Miss Norma Jean. Well, Marilyn Monroe was, as many people probably know, not a natural-born blonde. Yeah, in 1946, as the story goes, she went into the salon to have her hair done for a modeling shoot, and the tent technician straightened what she called Marilyn's brown and kinky hair. And the strong solution lightened her hair, making it a reddish blonde. And so you'll see in some of those early Marilyn modeling shots that her hair actually has a nice reddish tint to it. And and there's a lot of people who say a lot of lore that says, you know, oh, she didn't want to do it, they made her do it. But she came back and wanted to become a blonde, and over the next four to five months, that same technician lightened her hair to her trademark golden honey blonde. Another random tidbit about a bottle blonde that I was not aware of, and this is coming from Joanna Pittman's book on blondes, Princess Diana reportedly spent 3,600 pounds per year to stay blonde. Huh. That. Is she a brunette? Was she a brunette? I think she yeah, had, had darker <laughs> hair, okay. but... The woman that we can probably thank 100% for the popularity of redheads right now, Mm -hmm. I don't know if she was your inspiration, Caroline, but I know that Christina Hendricks, star of Mad Men, really ignited a red hair craze, but she was originally a blonde. She was. She started coloring her hair at the age of 10, and you know why, listeners? Because she was a huge fan of Anne of Green Gables. As if we needed another reason to love <laughs> Christina Hendricks. She dyed her hair because of Anne of Green Gables. No, I'll take pictures of Christina Hendricks to my colorist. And she's like, you realize that your hair is not that light. If you want to become the carrot top Christina Hendricks color, you've got to like completely strip. And I'm like, oh my God, that's so much upkeep. And then I just see dollar signs everywhere. And I'm like, you know what? Let's just Let's just color on top of my hair. And this is why I argue that wigs should be more socially acceptable. Sure. Then you wouldn't even have to worry about it. (laughs) But now let's get into more of the sociology of hair, why hair color it makes such a difference, and these stereotypes and perceptions that we have about the color of people's hair, especially of women's hair. Yeah, uh, Jody Manning of Western Connecticut State University in September 2011 put forth the idea that our culture, American culture, puts focus on the individual, emphasizing that appearance is a public display of one's values and beliefs, and that includes your hair. So what women do to their hair, how they color it, sends a message out to the universe. And researchers began studying what that message might be in the 1970s, which coincidentally was when we really saw that big uptick uh, in women coloring their hair at home. Uh, but yeah, researchers first began investigating our perceptions of hair color on women. And the initial findings suggested that people found brown hair 
the most appealing, and that's among men and women alike, followed by blonde, then red, then artificial blonde. And in the study that Jody Manning did in 2011, uh, she showed students pictures to judge of women with different colors of hair and also different lengths, like a brunette with long hair versus brunette with short hair, etc. And she found similarly that brunettes with long hair were considered to be higher maintenance than brunettes with shorter hair who were perceived to be smarter. So <laughs> short brunette hair, Smarter than long brunette hair, okay? Yeah, and then redheads with short hair were judged to be happier than redheads with long hair. So I guess after I come home from the colorist, I am unhappy looking. Uh Uh-oh. But uh, going on, blondes with long hair are perceived to be also higher maintenance, but more attractive than blondes with short hair. And interestingly enough, they also asked about femininity. And African-American women with black hair, both those with natural curly hair and those with straightened hair, were perceived as the most feminine, followed by blondes who were perceived as less intelligent. Yeah, the whole stereotyping of blondes as incompetent, the whole dumb blonde meme, um, is something that's really persistent in a lot of studies on hair color and perceptions. Um, for instance, Jody Manning in her study cites a 2006 study called Hair Color Stereotyping and CEO Selection in the United Kingdom. And those researchers found that blondes were underrepresented in corporate leadership, possibly due to stereotyping of blondes as incompetent. And that is something that affects women, not so surprisingly, even more so than men in the workplace of just seeing a blonde woman in the workplace and assuming just right off the bat, uh, she's not going to be great at her job. Uh, Well, just as they're underrepresented in the boardroom, they are overrepresented in magazines. And Manning also cited a study that examined hair color of models in Ladies Home Journal, Vogue and Playboy from the 1950s all the way to 1989. And came to the conclusion, because blondes were so overrepresented, that society's beauty standards didn't actually represent the population. Are you surprised, Kristen Conger? Yeah, but at the same time, though, it puts, it still puts blondes as this kind of feminine ideal. Mm-hmm. And that heteronormative construct of blondes being more sexually desirable is driven home again and again and again, as demonstrated by this series of articles from the past three years, starting with blondes out at clubs. So let's say you're a guy (laughs) who is into women and you go out to the club and a woman approaches you. If she's blonde, brunette, or redhead, does the hair color make a difference? Well, according to Viren Swamy's study published in December 2011 in the Scandinavian Journal of Psychology, oh, yes, it does. (laughs) Yeah, they looked at women who went to clubs with their hair dyed blonde, brown, or red, and the blonde was approached the most often. The second part of the study, though, had men looking at pictures of the same woman with different hair colors. And in this case, they said that the brunette was rated as more physically attractive, intelligent, approachable, competent, and arrogant, whereas the blonde was rated as needier. And yet, the blonde was the most approached, mm-hmm. which is kind of an interesting twist. Also, though, men rated redheads as the most promiscuous. Oh, dear. Now, moving on, though, blonde hair could literally 
payoff in the service industry. This is coming from an August 2012 study published in the Journal of Socioeconomics, looking at how a woman's hair color might influence customers' tipping behavior in restaurants. And essentially, they had a model... Uh, wait on tables and switch out her hair color via wigs. And waitresses wearing blonde wigs received more tips, but only from male and I'm assuming heterosexual patrons. Waitresses' hair color had no effect on women's tipping behavior. Yeah, women also were not influenced by blonde fundraisers the same way that men were, or blonde hitchhikers. I just love how all of these studies say the exact same thing, but they're just putting blondes in different scenarios all over the world. So in a December 2009 study in Perceptual and Motor Skills, in France, women with blonde hair on the side of the road sticking their thumb up were picked up way more often than women with black or brown hair when the drivers were men. Women wearing blonde wigs in France managed to raise more money for the French telethon than did women in brown or dark colored wigs. But, surprise, just from men. Just just from the men. But, you know, hair color discrimination actually works both ways. We've talked about what men prefer, but what about what women think? Uh, in a study in December 2012, blonde women were more frequently approached by men in a nightclub. So this is some of the same people that were involved in the other nightclub study. So blonde women were approached more, followed by brunette, black, then redheads. When men with wigs approached women asking for a dance, though, women said yes most often to men with black hair, then brown, then blonde, then redhead. People, what's wrong with you? Come on. Yeah, there is a lot of... Redhead discrimination that we'll talk about in a second. I like gingers. But okay, so the theory, because this, and this ties in with our previous nightclub study that we mentioned, but the theory is that men said that blonde hair looked the neediest, so perhaps they had the greatest confidence approaching a blonde woman. And, you know, the redhead being perceived as the least shy and most promiscuous, maybe they think they thought that they didn't have a chance. And that more contemporary research also jives with a 1978 study which found that men prefer blonde women, whereas women prefer dark haired men. But uh, the thing about a lot of this research, too, is that it focuses so much on, you know, essentially asking the question, do gentlemen prefer blondes Mm -hmm. over and over and over again and tip to hitchhikers out there right. want to buy a blonde wig. Um, but also, maybe don't hitchhike. Right. Dangerous. <laughs> PSA, over. But I could not find very much at all focusing on women's preferences to men. I mean, there's kind of a general assumption that we just want darker hair. Mm-hmm. And also, of course, no research whatsoever testing these same kinds of things among gay populations. So, because I, I was curious to see whether or not different colors of hair were valued, like based on sexual orientation. Maybe that could be a variable. Who knows? Yeah. But this kind of hard hitting research of interchanging wigs and such <laughs> at, uh, the, at the diner, yeah, has not caught up to the LGBT population. Um, but digging even more into the blonde thing, especially this idea that blonde women were approached more often because they appeared needier. I feel ties directly into the whole blondes are less intelligent than brunette women, the whole dumb blonde meme. And Caroline, I was astounded to find that this goes back 
way, way, way beyond Marilyn Monroe mm-hmm. to Paris, mm-hmm. 1775. There's this famous French courtesan, Rosalie Duth who is so popular in her day that she essentially spawns the dumb blonde meme when a playwright takes a shine to her and features her character in a one-act play and sort of satirizes this habit that Rosalie had of taking very long pauses in conversation. And I kind of think of her as like the blonde Kim Kardashian of her day because she was super famous in Paris at the time for rubbing elbows with the royals. Obviously, she was a courtesan and uh, was just kind of famous for being famous Mm -hmm. and for being dumb because the play took off and now she's referred to as history's original dumb blonde. Wow, what a legacy. I know. And I guess you could say, though, in the same way that Marilyn Monroe's character in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes is intentional with her... Uh, let's say, lack of intelligence because she rides her beauty to the arms of wealthy men, hmm. which I'm not going to advocate for, but you could say, you know, maybe she's, I don't know, playing to her strengths or something in a... In a <laughs> Why am I arguing for this? I don't know. Well, she is included on Grant McCracken's breakdown of the six categories of blondes. This is from Big Hair, A Journey into the Transformation of Self. He says we've got a couple of different types of blondes. Marilyn Monroe is up first, along with Mae West, as a bombshell blonde. We've got the sunny blonde, who's Doris Day and Goldie Hawn. Candace Bergen's brassy blonde. Sharon Stone's dangerous blonde. CZ Guest's society blonde. And Marlene Dietrich and Grace Kelly's Cool blonde. So what kind of blonde do you want to be? Just just choose your choice. Um, I did want to make the one note about uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes is that before it was a film starring Marilyn Monroe, it started out as a novel that was published in 1925 by Harper's writer and screenwriter Anita Luce. And it was this huge bestseller. And it was all about this blonde, obviously, protagonist, whom Luce wanted to represent the nation's lowest possible mentality. Oh. So, yeah, that that horrible, dumb blonde meme just running through through history. It's really unfortunate, though. Hmm. I don't know. I feel like it's because it's obviously like sometimes it's directed at men, but overwhelmingly it's directed at women. And it usually is horribly sexist, and I'm friends with plenty of smart blonde people. Yes, I'm aware of some as well. Yes. But on a more serious note, though, to kind of close things off on this Hair Color Perceptions podcast, we got to talk about redhead discrimination, because while blondes are perceived a lot of times, unfortunately, as more incompetent, and brunettes are just kind of like, well, whatever, and maybe too smart for their own good. Uh, that's speaking in stereotype. I'm not saying that's actually possible. Um, redheads get the shortest end of the stick. Yeah, I had no idea before reading stuff for this episode that there were actual physical violent attacks against redheads. I seriously thought it was just like a joke coming from uh, a South Park episode. 
no idea that there was actual violence. And a lot of it is in the UK. It seems to be a very British phenomenon. And the head of Kidscape, which is a UK bullying prevention initiative, says that there's no logic to it. It's ingrained in some part of our folklore, she says. Yeah, and that was coming from a Telegraph article from the past year or two reporting on an incident when a couple of redheads were beaten up, apparently just because... They're redheads. Yeah. Dr. Lisa Wade said that this could be related to the longstanding antagonism between Britain and Ireland, that the discrimination against Irish people who are typically the percentage of redheads is higher, that this discrimination then crossed the Atlantic with early Americans so that it's just like, you know, ingrained in everything. Yeah. And Robert Bartlett, who's a medieval history expert, he was interviewed for that Telegraph article, um, says that the discrimination against redheads actually dates back to ancient Egypt, where the god Set, who was associated with earthquakes, thunderstorms and eclipses, was depicted with pale skin and reddish hair. And um, there is also some redhead discrimination in ancient Rome when the Gales, who were captured by Caesar, were forced to dye their hair red and learn German in order to signify class rank. Hmm. And in the 15th century, we can't leave out witch, witchcraft. Redheads were accused of being witches and burned at the stake. Oh, no. So we're obviously evil. I say we because I really want to be one of you. And let's not forget, though, something that could be perceived as a benefit. Kristen, a University of Hamburg study found that redheads have more active sex lives than brunettes and blondes. So redheads get the last laugh or the last Orgasm. <laughs> there you go. Perhaps. Perhaps. No, I, it, the, the, the redhead discrimination though does break my heart. I was telling Caroline before we started recording this podcast that I have a couple of, uh, young redheaded nephews and even at 10 years old, they're aware that being a redhead is not cool. I think it is cool. I know. And then I responded to Kristen by saying that one of my first loves was a ginger, so I have a very soft spot for redheaded boys. Yeah, so, I mean, we maybe we should advocate for... Isn't there a hug a ginger day? <laughs> Although, you know what, I bet, I bet gingers don't want to be pandered to. Yeah, they, they don't want out. your pity, Kristen. Yeah, they get called out for their, their hair color so often. Um, but uh, let's go, though, to wrap things up to our question that we posed. In the podcast title, do blondes have more fun, Caroline? They certainly get more stereotypes. They certainly have better luck hitchhiking. Oh, yeah. I would say that, no, I don't think blondes do have more fun because they're having to battle usually negative stereotypes about their intelligence. Yeah. So, no. (laughs) No. No going to say the answer is no. Well, I mean, I guess it depends on your definition. Like if if you want, I mean, look at all these studies and my papers that I'm jostling about men paying more attention to blondes. So if that's your definition of more fun, maybe you should uh, bleach your hair. But is it problematic, though, that the reason why, at least according to those studies, that they're being approached more often is because they're perceived as needier? Yes, but. Right. You know. To each his own. Yeah. And also, where are the studies on on brunette perceptions? I guess it's just like you're everybody. You're all over the world. Everybody's got your hair. You just you're just another person. Aw. You're not hair. just another person to me. Thank you. Thank you. Well, blondes out there, we especially want to hear from you. Or people who are perhaps bottle blondes. Mm-hmm. Did going blonde change your life? 
in any way? I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Are the hair color stereotypes real? Redheads out there, have you been unfairly discriminated against? Let us know all of your hair color-related thoughts. MomStuffAtDiscovery.com is where you can send your letters. And you can also message us on Facebook and tweet us at MomStuffPodcast. And now, back to our letters. Well, Kristen, uh, I have a letter here from Michaela about our Kids at the Workplace episode. Uh, she says, I found it rather ironic to see your most recent podcast title because my husband just dropped my five-year-old off at my office for the afternoon while I work. I am fortunate enough to work for a flexible company that allows pretty much whatever reasonable concession necessary when dealing with parenting. Today, my son is here just to enjoy stamping envelopes and playing with my stapler. You watch out, Michaela. Yes. I, I remember in third grade, my, my classmate stapling her finger. And she was not five. She was however old you are in third grade. Anyway... Michaela says, my husband and I are so looking forward to this fall when our daycare bill will be cut in half thanks to that five-year-old of mine entering the school force. We've been through four or five different daycares of various quality before finding our current, which is the most expensive, but definitely the best option we've found. For our five-year-old and two-year-old, our daycare bill is higher than our monthly mortgage payment. I would definitely pay the equivalent of this for the convenience of on-site childcare. It would have been amazing after having my kids and spending countless hours pumping bottles for the babies I was missing. So thanks, Michaela, and watch out for the stapler. Well, I've got an email here from Zara, and she wanted to add another perspective on that podcast on childcare at work and about how Quebec handles things. She writes, Since 1997, Quebec has had a subsidized daycare system that is $7 per day per child. Not everyone can get a spot in subsidized daycare, which has led to some employers building a daycare on the premises or taking an arrangement with existing daycares to give priorities to their employers over the general population. People on Social Security also get priority, if I recall correctly, so they can go back to the workforce. If you don't get a place in subsidized daycare, you can get a refund at tax time if you go to a non-subsidized daycare. Non-subsidized daycares usually charge about $20 to $30 per day, though some are more expensive. There's no sliding scale depending on your child's age. It's the same fee for everybody. A study published in 2012 showed that subsidized daycare is actually profitable for the government. Around 70,000 women went back to the workforce since the subsidized daycare program started. For a proportion of 75% of women aged 15 to 64 now working, up from 63% in 1990. As a result, for each $100 that the provincial government invested in the program, they received $104 and the government received $43. So, apparently, subsidized daycare can be good not only for businesses' bottom lines, but also for Canadian provinces or Quebec. Specifically, but yeah, no, that's a, that's a interesting to see how it can profit the government as well. So thanks for that insight to Zara and everyone else who has written into MomStuffAtDiscovery.com. You can also find us on Facebook, of course. Follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. We're on Tumblr as well at StuffMomNeverToldYou.tumblr.com. And in case you haven't subscribed yet, you can watch us on YouTube at YouTube.com/StuffMomNeverToldYou. We're coming at you three times a week on YouTube. YouTube, so check it out there. And if you're not already busy enough, head over to our website, it's howstuffworks.com.
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 